Now tonight we're coming to the another of the delightful letters of the Apostle Paul, the letter to the Philippians. This with many is the favorite uh, epistle of the New Testament. And it's been called the tenderest letter that Paul ever wrote and the most delightful letter that he ever wrote. And it's a letter brimming over with expressions of joy and confidence and rejoicing, despite the fact that this is one of Paul's prison epistles, written while he was a prisoner in Rome during his first imprisonment. You get the background for this letter from the uh, closing uh, section of the book of Acts, and also the story in chapter 17 of Paul's visit, or 16 rather, of Paul's visit to the city of Philippi, where he founded the church to which he later wrote this letter. And you recall those exciting and danger-filled days when Paul and Silas were in Philippi together, and they first met a group of women who were having a prayer meeting out by the riverside. And to these women, they spoke the gospel, and one of them uh, invited them into her home, Lydia, a seller of purple, whose name has been known throughout the centuries since because of her kindness and hospitality to the apostle. And in the home of Lydia, a church began, and uh, the apostles' preaching throughout the city stirred up a great deal of uh, interest and reaction and finally aroused the resentment of the rulers, and he was thrown into jail. And you remember it was on that uh, uh, occasion when he and Silas were in the stocks, down in the inner prison, locked up in these stocks, arms and heads and so on held him immobile, that an earthquake occurred that shook the prison down, shook the walls, released the prisoners, and set them free. And it was at that time that the Philippian jailer came running in and fell down before the apostle and uh, thought his life was forfeit and cried out in those words that have been the subject of so many gospel sermons, what must I do to be saved? And the apostle's answer was brief and to the point, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and all thy house. And then later on, he went on to the cities of Thessalonica, Berea and Athens and other places and now here he is in Rome a prisoner of Nero uh, allowed to stay in his own hired house but chained day and night to a Roman soldier and awaiting trial before the emperor Nero knowing that his life could easily be forfeit when he appeared before this man and yet this epistle glows with radiance and joy and confidence and strength One of the most delightful letters of the New Testament. And it's a great uh, encouragement to any downcast or discouraged heart to read the letter of the Philippians. If you are going through times of pressure and trial, I I urgently urge you to read this, this little letter. It will encourage you greatly, especially if you remember the context out of which it comes. The letter is uh, divided into four chapters, as we have it in our New Testament. And for once, the chapters seem to represent natural divisions within the text. Uh, the, uh, the subject or theme of this letter 
is, is Jesus Christ and his availability for the problems of life. The church at Philippi, to which Paul wrote, was not a church beset with doctrinal error, as was the, Philippi, uh, the Colossian church or the Galatian church, as we saw last week, or the Ephesian church. It was a church that basically had no doctrinal problems, but it had the normal, usual problems of everyday, commonplace existence. Christians who didn't get along with one another, difficulties and incipient divisions within the church, certain ones who uh, were creating uh, problems by their uh, uh, efforts to uh, lead the people off on uh, ideas that were not quite in accord with the Christian faith. And uh, there were these usual problems arising. So that this is essentially the epistle designed for ordinary living. It faces the normal problems of a Christian. And in the midst of it, it, uh, it reflects the victory which a Christian can come to in these problems, in these circumstances. And the one repeated theme that runs throughout the letter is that of joy, rejoicing. Over and over again, the apostle says, uh, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice in your difficulties. So that this becomes a letter in which we're instructed how to live victoriously and rejoicingly in the midst of the normal difficulties of life. The four chapters present Christ in four different aspects. First, he's presented in chapter 1 as our life. Christ, our life. And these themes of the four chapters are caught up for us in four key verses that appear in these chapters. I think you'll immediately recognize what's the key verse of chapter 1 that sets forth this idea that Christ is our life. It's found, of course, in verse 21, where the apostle says, For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. To me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I think oftentimes we read that letter, that uh, verse, as though here was a, here was the cry of a man who was fed up with life. Who could hardly wait to get away to heaven. He'd had it. He was in difficulties, he was in pressures and problems, and he just longed to get away and go to heaven and get away from it all. Sort of a Christian escapism. To die is gain. And the emphasis that we usually put on that is at the end, uh, on that phrase, to die is gain. Because it, I think, reflects sometimes a very common attitude that we Christians have, that uh, we'd like to get away from it all. We don't like living life the way we have to live it. And uh, we look longingly away to heaven and sing songs like, uh, sometimes I grow homesick for heaven, and things like that. But that isn't what the apostle is saying at all. If you look at really what he's saying, he goes on to say, I don't know which to choose. To me to live is Christ. And to die is gain, but if I had to choose, I don't know which I'd choose. Which certainly indicates that he was not fed up with life, and he wasn't discouraged because of his circumstances at all. In fact, he was saying, since to me to live is the experience of Christ who is my life, then uh, 
Life is a continual adventure and excitement, and I can hardly wait to live it. (laughs) I'm not discouraged by life. In fact, the context of this whole section indicates this. He writes to these Philippians and says, don't be disturbed about me, brethren. You hear that I'm in prison. But let me tell you something. These things have but served to advance the gospel. And my imprisonment has made it, has made it possible for the gospel to go out in Rome as it never has before. And I'm not discouraged. I'm rejoicing. <laughs> Furthermore, he says, the people here in Rome, the other Christians are stirred up and are preaching around the city. And a very unique evangelistic enterprise was occurring, the like of which has perhaps never been seen before or since. And he tells them what it is. God had de- had had derived or had designed a new plan for reaching the Roman Empire that Paul never dreamed of. And you know who he made head of the arrangements committee? Nero, the emperor. Because as Paul tells us in verse 12, or verse 13, he says, It has become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And if you read between the lines there, you can see what was happening. That Nero, the emperor, had commanded that every six hours, one of the finest young men in the whole Roman Empire, the pick of the, of the empire, who constituted his personal bodyguard, would be brought in every six hours and chained to the Apostle Paul in order that he might instruct him in the things of Christ. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and one by one, they were coming to Christ. So that one by one, there was for, being formed a pick band of young men the very keenest and most intelligent and the, the finest, strongest young men of the empire who were one by one coming to Christ. Now, if you don't believe that, look at the last chapter of the letter. We're in the lat- next to the last verse. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. <laughs> now, isn't that a unique plan for evangelizing the Roman Empire? But that's the kind of God Paul had. And that's why he could say to me to live is Christ. I don't know what he's going to do next. This is exciting. This is adventurous. And uh, to step out into the daily adventure of a new experience with Jesus Christ captivates my heart. I don't know which to choose, he said, whether to live this exciting life or to die and to be with him. I hardly know which to choose. Now, that's what life in Christ means. We know that he died for us in order that he might live in us. And the experience of the outworking of Christ's life in us is what turns life, uh, turns it on, and makes it a vital and a glorious experience. And you can't read this first chapter of this letter without seeing how thoroughly the apostle had discovered this. Even as he contemplates waiting, appearing before Nero, he says this. I know, he says, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. For it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What had made the difference? 
this man had found the secret that God intended for humanity. God indwelling man. It takes man to be a, it takes God to be a man. And no life is complete that does not have God in it. And Paul had found this out to the glory of his day by day existence. And he never forgot it. He lived it to the full. Christ is our life. Now in chapter 2, he <clears throat> applies this secret in a different way. In this chapter, he's dealing with the problem of disunity that was threatening some of the uh, saints at Philippi. The fact that there were certain ones among them who were quarreling with one another. And there, was, uh, there were divisions within the, the body of the church. This is constantly true in almost any church. People get irritated with each other. They get upset by the way other people do things. They don't like the attitudes that someone displays or the tone of voice in which they speak. And they tend to separate and form cliques and divisions. And these things are always destructive to the life and vitality of a church. And so Paul, writing to these people, points out to them that Christ is our example in the settling of difficulties and problems. And the key verse that sets this out, or rather key passage, begins in chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which you have in Christ Jesus. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Have this mind which you have. <laughs> what he means, of course, is ex let, let it be expressed. You have the mind of Christ since you have Christ. All right, let it be expressed. Allow it to come forth. Let it show itself. And what is the characteristic of this mind? Well, he goes on to tell us. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the word really means a thing to be held on to at all costs. He didn't count the fact that he was equal with the Father. One with God the Father and God the Spirit. That he was one of the three of the triune God. He didn't count that a thing to be held on to at all costs. Think of that. The greatest relationship that could possibly be true of any being or person, personality was his. But he didn't count it a thing to be held on to at all costs. But he, uh, he um, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he went still lower. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. That's the self-condescension of Jesus Christ. The emptying out of all that, that he held of value in his life. And this, says Paul, is the mind of Jesus Christ. And in your quarrels, one with another... Have this attitude toward each other. Don't hang on to your rights at all costs. What a word this is for these days, when we're hearing so much about my rights and insisting upon our rights. I never can forget in this connection, and I've told it before, I know, but perhaps it'll remind us once again 
of the incident that Dr. H.A. Ironside used to relate when he was a boy of only eight or ten years of age when his mother took him to a meeting of Christians, a business meeting, and two men were having a quarrel. And uh, he didn't remember what it was about, but one of them stood up and pounded on the desk and said, I don't care what the rest of you do, all I want is my rights. And there was a dear old Scottish brother sitting on the front seat. It was a little hard of hearing. He cupped his hand behind his ear and he leaned forward. He said, I, brother, he said, what's that you say? What do you want? The fellow said, well, I don't, I just said all I want is my rights. That's all. And the man said, you're right, brother. Is that what you want? Your rights? He said, if you want, if you had your rights, you'd be in hell. The Lord Jesus didn't come to get his rights. He came to get his wrongs, and he got them. And the fellow stood transfixed for a moment, and then he sat down. He said, you're right, settle it any way you like. And in a few moments, the thing was settled. You see, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who gave up his rights and humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And what was the result? Don't stop there. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he gave up his rights, God gave him every right in the universe. He put his his problem in God's hands, and God the Father vindicated him. And this is what Paul is saying to quarreling Christians. Give up your rights. Don't insist on them. In humility, he says, let every man think, uh, uh, verse 3, um, Yes, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. And the opening words of the chapter are his practical application of this truth. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. And then he goes on in the rest of the chapter to show that when they decide to do this, God will be at work. It's God who works in you, he says, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And he closes the chapter with listing two of his co-workers who exemplified these very attributes, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, who was faithful, who, as he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely anxious for all your welfare. They all look after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but Timothy's worth you know. And then dear Epaphroditus, who had come from these saints at Philippi and had brought a gift from them to Paul, and then had fallen sick, desperately ill, and they had heard about his illness and were troubled about it, And Paul says, you did right to be concerned. He said he was very ill, but God had mercy on him. And now, he says, I send him back to you, 
that you might receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete your service to me. He gave up his rights. Have this mind which is in you, Christ our example. I think if we'd put that into practice, we'd be a different people, wouldn't we? There'd be no quarreling within churches and no divisions within among Christians. Chapter 3 sets forth Christ again, and this time as our confidence. Christ, our confidence, our motivating power, the one who who moves us to want desperately what we ought to want, and who makes us feel confident that it can be achieved. I don't think there's any quality in life that's more in desperate demand than that. Who isn't looking for motivation today? All these courses on personal um, build-up and personality build-up and so on are all designed to try to give us that, that spark that energizes, that motivates us, and makes us want to do what we ought to do and would like to do. And this, the apostle says, we'll find in Jesus Christ. He is the motivator. And he puts it strongly in verse, in that well-known verse, verse 10 of chapter 3. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There it is, that I may know him. And in contrast to that, he outlines for us the things that motivated him and that gave him confidence, or lack of it, rather, uh, or, or rather a false sense of confidence, when he, before he became a Christian. In the earlier part of the chapter, you remember, he describes Christians as those who worship God in spirit, glory in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And there's the problem with us. We are constantly trying to build up confidence in the flesh. That's the underlying philosophy of all these personality build-up courses. The Dale Carnegie course. And uh, the Powers Girls. And all the others. is an attempt to teach us how to have confidence in the flesh. And Paul lists uh, the training that he'd had in that. He goes on. He says, uh, if... Uh, if others think they have confidence, reason for confidence in the flesh, look over my qualifications. These are the things he said in which I had pride and confidence. My, my, uh, ancestry. I was born, I was uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. An absolute Boston blue blood. You can't beat it for ancestry. Furthermore, he said, I was proud of my orthodoxy. As to uh, the law of Pharisee, the strictest sect of my religion, he says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And then I was proud of my activity as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And then of my morality as to the... Uh, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But now he said, whatever these things were to me, I counted loss, because I found that Christ could be my confidence. And all the confidence that I once got from these secondary sources, I found to be of absolute no avail compared to that which Jesus Christ gives. And in resting upon his life in me, I have found so much more that this other is but dross, but dung, but refuse compared to what Christ gives. Christ, our confidence. And in the latter part of the chapter, he contrasts it again with those who seek in the guise of religion secondary values. Uh, Their end, he says, is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and they mind earthly things. But on the contrary, those whose confidence is in Christ doesn't end with this life. But we look for a city, a, a commonwealth which is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body. Then in chapter 4, you have not only Christ as our motivator, but Christ our strength, our energizer. Not only does he move us to want the right things, but he makes it possible for us to do it. He provides the dynamic that fulfills the desire. It's a kind of mental torture to give a man a great desire and never give him the ability to fulfill it, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's some kind of torment to be seized with a passion, an urge to do something that we find ourselves actually unable to perform. That's a certain recipe for frustration. And so, you see, the apostle closes this with indicating that Christ gives a complete fulfillment. He supplies our strength as well. And in verse 13, he declares it. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And if you look at the context there, you'll see how practical some of these problems are. There's the problem of getting along with others first. There were those two ladies there in the church at uh, Philippi. We know they're ladies because in the Greek, their form, the form of their names is feminine. And their names were Euodia and Syntyche. And of course, you all remember the story of the, fellow, of the dear man who couldn't quite read these names very well, and he read it this way, I beseech odious and soon touchy that they be of the same mind in the Lord and unfortunately we still have in our churches odious people and soon touchy people those who get their feelings hurt very easy and those who delight in hurting others feelings but the apostle says I beseech you be of the same mind in the Lord how I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me That's the secret. And then there's this matter of worry. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. What a recipe for peace in the midst of anxious conditions. How many have tried that and found it works? Have no anxiety against anything, 
about anything. But in everything, <clears throat> you see, there's a counteraction proposed. Don't just sit there and fret or try to turn your mind off. Don't suppress your anxieties. Pray about them with thanksgiving and leave it there. And the peace of God, which you'll never be able to understand where it comes from or how it got there, will suddenly be found possessing your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Christ is our strength. And then there's the matter of poverty. Paul says, I've learned uh, not to complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. And he passes it on to the Philippians. He says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and grace in Christ Jesus. Christ our strength. This is the secret of a man who, who ran the full course, who fought the good fight, who kept the faith. And this is his explanation of how he did it. And we who live in this 20th century with its perils and problems and its frustrations, its anxieties, its pressures, need to discover this same thing because we have the same one indwelling us that indwelt the Apostle Paul. Christ is our life. Christ is our example. Christ is our confidence. Christ is our strength. Shall we stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. <clears throat> And now, our Father, we ask that thou wilt grant these words to take root in our hearts and lives. May we not mere, be mere hearers of the word, but doers also. Keep us from deceiving ourselves. And going out from here, having heard these things, but unwilling to do them, grant to us that we may begin at whatever level we find ourselves, whether we be young or old, in school or at home or at work or wherever it may be, ready to, to test these promises and step out upon these mighty truths and discover with the Apostle Paul the joy that floods the heart of someone who discovers Christ as a living, living Lord and who can help us to live in the, in the daily adventure of a new discovery with him. For we ask it in his name. Amen.